Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one featuring former leader of the Labour Party, Ed Miliband. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant, funny, uh, heartfelt, deeply intelligent, and just with some really great, some fantastic stories. And clearly, I mean, he is, he is blessed with a, with a real brain a brain for policy and for ideas and for detail. Uh, and it's really fascinating talking to him, reflecting on his leadership, looking forward to the future, and talking about all the things you'd expect us to talk about. Um, with Prime Minister's question time against Cameron, his relationship with his brother, the way the press treated his dad, so, and all so many other things in there. Um, his love for snooker, um, the fact he knows Damien Hurst. I mean, just there's so many different things to take from this interview. Uh, it was one of the most absorbing interviews I've done. Um, and his brokering between Corbyn and Blair is interesting. Uh, there's, there's just so much in this. I can't do justice to it in an introduction. Um, but thank you for downloading it. Those of you who came, I mean, it, I had a lot of messages afterwards. It really was a very special night. Um, most of the political parties are sold out until the end of the year, but if you go onto the Other Palace website, theotherpalace.co.uk, I think there are a few standing uh, or even a couple of seats left for some of the shows later this year. I'm on tour as well. Uh, the moment that this series of Unspun finishes, and if you'd like free tickets to come and see Unspun recorded, you can get those at tvrecordings.com. Uh, but after that, I go immediately on tour uh, with a new show, which comes to Glasgow on the 25th of March. That's the Glasgow stand on the 25th of March, the Edinburgh stand on the 27th of March, Bristol on the 29th of March. I'm doing five nights at the London Soho Theatre from the 3rd to the 7th of April. Banbury on the 12th of April, Harpenden on the 19th of April, Sale on the 2nd of May, Tiverton on the 4th of May, Loughborough on the 18th of May, and there are some other dates as well. You can get tickets for all those on the website, mattford.com slash live. It'd be lovely to see you there. I know a lot of people want to help the podcast in whatever way they can. Uh, that's a nice way you can help it. Also, do subscribe, share the episode online, and if you can, leave an iTunes review. It just makes such a difference, or on whatever platform you listen. Uh, right, without further ado... It's Ed Miller. Excellent, excellent. excellent. Uh, fascinating week uh, in politics. Boris Johnson's been in trouble this week uh, over the Irish border. Exactly when his name. But uh, <laughs> uh, for the uh, Irish comments about the Irish border, which he said, I, when I was mayor of London, you know, we 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 had a similar issue with Camden and Westminster, and we were we were able to sort that out. So I see no good reason why we cannot. Right. Now, obviously, key differences between the issues between Irish republicanism and the history of British rule in the northern part of Ireland and Camden <laughs> and Westminster. As far as I'm aware, there's no sectarian war going on between Camden and Westminster. I don't know. I mean, what next? No, no, I don't. Let me just say to the North Koreans that Nottingham and Derby have been able to deal with this for years. <laughs> There are, I, Kim Jong-un, no, there are no penal colonies on the M1. For people who leave Derby to go to Nottingham, I believe they've shown the way. Yes. I, 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 I. <laughs> Getting a lot of publicity at the moment, isn't he? His big speech at Policy Exchange of the Week. The Cabinet now are going to do ten speeches. I think we've had two or three of them. Uh, to, to reach out to those of us who voted to remain and convince us all uh, to support Brexit. And Boris's was a noble attempt to promote... Uh, himself, sorry, Brexit, and <laughs> reach out to the other half of the side, these Ramonas, these Ramoniacs, these damn trousered country-hating scum who we want to bring on board <laughs> in a comradely manner. Yeah, yeah. And carrots. Did anyone see it? 
just out of nowhere, like some sort of hypnotised Paul McKenna contestant. Carrots, yes, carrots. Anyway, back to the single market, and yeah, carrots as well. I rem- we must all unite behind Brexit. I remember the day that I was convinced to vote leave. Michael Gove came round to my house with some black and white photos of me, and and <laughs> so if you don't support leave, I'm going to the sun. From that point on, I was convinced of the case of staying, indeed leaving. Uh, the single market, and we need to reach out. Now, you know, Brexit is liberal. That was one of the great things he said. Brexit is liberal. Brexit is internationalist. Brexit is whatever we want it to be. Uh, and UKIP are left wing, and meat is vegetarian, and I have a vagina. Yes. Just say any old shit and believe it himself. Uh, and we will. We will. People asking for clarity. Oh, let me give it to them, because we will not surrender to these ham-headed hugglewimps, these tizzle-toe-tiggle puffs, or indeed these wimble-witted wiggle-wops. And what could be clearer than that? People looking for clarity, I'm sure, have now received it. Uh, my favourite story of the last month, probably yours as well, has been about Agent Cobb. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, apparently, uh, according to uh, a rogue Czechoslovakian agent, Jeremy Corbyn was a paid informant during the 80s. Now, this raises a number of questions, mainly... What secrets would Jeremy Corbyn have had? I mean, what secrets would he have now, let alone... I mean, even if he was Prime Minister, he'd be a pretty shit agent. He was an opposition backbench MP in the 1980s. Unless the Czechoslovakians were desperate to know what Islington CND thought of George Michael leaving WAM. I'm not sure what relevant information he could have possibly had. This guy, Sarkozy, claimed he said... uh, well, I don't know, I've read it in print, but, you know, it's Eastern European, so a generic accent will work. Uh, he said... Uh, <laughs> won't get me into trouble with it. Thank God he wasn't from India, but he said... Um, <laughs> fine to do Europeans, isn't it? It's fine. Uh, he said... Um, he said, Corbyn was very good informant. He would let me know what Margaret Thatcher was having for breakfast, dinner, and for her supper, and what clothes she was wearing the following day. Um, he's now working as a meerkat. Uh, but he... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, what, what the, how would Corbyn know what Thatcher was having to eat and what was in her wardrobe the following day? Unless that's the biggest conspiracy of all. Corbyn was shagging Thatcher. <laughs> this goes right to the top. Fair play to Corbyn. He's, uh, he's battered the story away. Uh, it wasn't, they, Corbyn wasn't the only one that they approached. Corbyn met with him three times, apparently. Uh, Ken Livingston, uh, according to Sarkozy, was... Um, according to Sarkozy, he said he would come to our embassy, drink whiskey... Tell us everything that he knew. He was good boy. Now, he's definitely met him, because that is... You know, Livingston's defence was actually, no, I, I don't uh, drink whiskey, I, I'm more of a brandy man. Like, yeah, it looks identical, mate. I mean, he's a... Can't have been me, mate. No, no, she said some guy was pissed on Carling uh, and killed a bloke. I mean, it can't be me, I'm a Foster's man. <laughs> Incredible logic. Um, but Ken, Ken replied in an interview with the Daily Mail, uh, typically diplomatic, he said, this bloke is a Czech nutter. <laughs> it's nice to see he's moved on from the Jews. So uh, <laughs> at least he's spreading it around a bit. Fair play to him. Um, the Tories, of course, went berserk, didn't they? They couldn't help themselves. The last time they got this excited, they lost the majority. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Donald Trump, of course, has been in the news, uh, as he always is, um, the, for his responses to the, the awful school shoot in America. I saw him speak outside the school on telling his schools are gun-free zones, and, and they are gun-free zones, by the way. And I thought, this is great. He's really getting on. And that is a problem, because... <laughs> what? How is that the problem? 
gun-free zone sounds good to me. That's the problem, because it means if somebody does come in, there are no bullets going in the other direction. Which is, oh, there's something really cold and bleak about hearing that. Um, but he said a number of things that were, that were quite incredible. Um, he said he wants teachers to have guns. He said, CNN and the fake media, they say I want teachers to have guns. That's made up. I don't want teachers to have guns. But all I'm saying is, if you went to a school where you got 20, maybe 10, maybe 40% of teachers with guns. <laughs> go, well, hang on, you just said you didn't, and now you're like coming out with stats about how great it is. Then that, that school's a hard target. Then it's harder to, so we would. And actually, if you're talking about who would have a gun, I thought, you, I thought you weren't so well. If you're talking about, then we will train, because you've got people who are ex-Marines in there. You've got Army, Navy, Special Forces, not really warming to his theme. And then he goes, people have won competitions. <laughs> what? A friend of mine won a big teddy at Hull Fair. He's really good. I mean, if anything, that's harder, because they medal with a sight, so he's really good. So he can, he's really good at that sort of thing. Northern Ireland, of course. Incredible what's happening in Northern Ireland and our little media coverage it's had. In Northern Ireland, they haven't had a functioning government for over a year. Who do they think they are? Theresa May. (laughs) That's her job. Uh, And you may be aware that there's a power-sharing arrangement where both sides of the sectarian divide get to choose a first minister and a deputy. And the two major players are uh, the Adams family, the DUP, and the Gerry Adams family, Sinn Féin. (laughs) And they... They're forced to do this deal together. Now, they have, it's caused total paralysis. Anyone who wonders whether we need politicians or not needs to look at Northern Ireland because on top of the budget increase and on top of the billion quid that Theresa May gave to Northern Ireland as a part of that DUP deal, no political decisions can be taken. So there's all that money waiting there to be spent. Hospital waiting lists are going through the roof. Uh, the DUP have said that they will make an exception for urgent surgery, including cancer care and electric shock therapy for homosexuals. So <laughs> the major... <laughs> The major surgery is getting through, but the, the, the sticking point, and this is what they've been arguing, arguing over for a year, uh, is something called the Irish Language Act, uh, where Sinn Féin want the Irish language to be able to be used in courts, um, which isn't surprising, given how much time they've spent there, uh, <laughs> over the years, and, uh, and they want road signs to be bilingual, uh, which has really offended the DUP, because they said that uh, bilingual people are an abomination in the eyes of God. <laughs> shouldn't be allowed to marry. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the government impact assessments about the uh, effects of Brexit were leaked and showed that depending on where you live, the economy will shrink over 15 years by either 3, 5 or 8%. Um, apparently the worst affected areas will be the Midlands, the North East and Scotland, and London will broadly be OK. It's almost like Brexit never happened, really. Uh, not much changed from now. Uh, and David Davis, of course, uh, in a stunning piece of publicity, said, don't worry, Brexit won't be some sort of dystopian Mad Max world. Which is an analogy none of us had thought of until then. (laughs) Oh, cheers, mate, yeah. Uh, Next week, don't worry, Brexit won't molest your kids. (laughs) Don't think about that. Put that out of your mind. It's just such a stupid thing to say. I made you a cup of tea, don't worry. I haven't shat in it. Why aren't you drinking it? What's wrong with you? I told you there wasn't shit in it. You're weird. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have one of the most exciting guests in the second half. Um, I always get... People take the piss out of me saying this, but it is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. (laughs) It's true, but I've wanted to interview all my guests for a long time. 
Uh, but well, I'm so excited uh, for the second half. So as always, you're phenomenal. Thank you for coming out in such conditions. You're brave. This is you're British. You're, we're, we're all we're all mogites tonight. Uh, have a great break. Have a great drink, and I'll be back in 20 minutes with the wonderful Ed Miliband. For now, I've been Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Well, tonight we have a very, very special guest. Uh, someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Uh, well, I have, but this show has been going for uh, just over five years, and certain politicians have dominated a lot of the discussions we've had here. And I think it's fair to say that tonight's guest really was a, was a huge part of the show when it started in terms of the discussions we were having, in terms of the impressions we were doing, and, uh, and all the rest of it. So it's just... I'm so delighted. I'm, I've been... Genuinely more excited about tonight than I have been for, than since the last one. So I've been uh, genuinely excited. And he's someone who, since leading the Labour Party, which in itself is a huge achievement and serving in Cabinet and being an advisor inside Downing Street, has gone on to arguably bigger and better things. Uh, and has a, has a, no, but I mean that in a genuine... That, was, that wasn't, that wasn't the, what you thought it was. Uh, with a huge podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, uh, with Jeff Lloyd, that is very successful, over appearances on the last leg and various other things. He is slightly reinventing himself, um, but he's still taken seriously as a politician, which is very important. I, am, I just can't say how excited I am to say, ladies and gentlemen, and give, please, a massive, massive welcome to Ed Miliband. Thank you. Have a seat. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, a nice introduction. You say yeah. that about all the guests, though, do you? Well, well, well. well. Um, it, but I mean it about all the guests, but it, it's because I wouldn't invite people on that I wasn't excited by. But I am particularly excited about interviewing, just because of the, the period in time that the show has existed, really, was yeah. the Miliband years, was the Miliband and Cameron years. Uh, I was watching Prime Minister's Question Time today, and actually... The Corbyn May years aren't as exciting in a parliamentary sense as they were. Like, you and Cameron were the last two that really had a ding-dong at Prime Minister's Questions. Did you enjoy doing PMQs? Oh, that was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, no, it was hell. Um, uh, 120-something of them. Um, God, where do I even begin on Prime Minister's Questions? I mean, it was like a sort of... Uh, I think the thing people don't understand about Prime Minister's Questions is doing one is sort of okay, yeah. right? Because you're incredibly nervous. You put, uh, put all your energy into it. And ho- hopefully it goes well. Sometimes it can go badly. It's doing them every week yeah. is just a complete nightmare. Because it is like, you know, it's like painting the fourth road bridge. You know, you get to the end, you get to Wednesday, and you're already thinking, oh, my God, what are we going to do next week? <laughs> and now that has got... Well, the only good part of that is if it's a completely crap one that you've done, maybe it'll get better next week, although maybe it won't. Um, <laughs> Blair said to me, I was at, um, I was at uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's funeral, actually, and, and I just have this image of, it's relatively early on in my leadership, I think, and I was, Blair and I were on a coach together, and he said, yeah, I mean, you know, Prime Minister's question is, you know. Uh, 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 Holy shit. Uh, you, know, I mean, you know, it's the joust, it's the joust that matters. You've got you to concentrate on the joust. You know, that's the sort of back and forth, not the argument, it's the joust. Uh, and he said, uh, but I mean, if you do two or three badly, then it, you know, it gets really quite bad for you. And I was thinking, oh, Christ, you know, this is sort of keeping the pressure on. Yeah. And, you know, so he felt that pressure. You know, he, you know, won an election, then won another election, won another election. He felt that pressure. And it's about your own side. And you can always tell if it had gone badly 
because you'd walk back, lonely walk, back from uh, the House of Commons, and nobody would want to catch you. They'd be like, oh, I don't want to catch your eye. And when it went well, people were like, oh, that was great. And, and the gap between triumph and disaster was very, very small, I often felt. You know, one good line from him, he'd be declared the winner. One good yeah. line from me, occasionally, I would be declared the winner. Uh, <laughs> Did you have a strategy? Did you think, right, we're going to take a long view of it and I will broadly ask six questions on the same thing? Oh, uh, I wish I had. It's so, <laughs> it's so difficult, though, because, you know, the, the pressures you've got, are you've got your media person who says yeah. to you, you know, on Tuesday or certainly Wednesday morning, look, this is the story in the newspapers. If you go on some other thing, yeah. you're going to be off the news cycle. You're just going to be, you know, it's just not where the news is. And so, you know, I tried to do themes like the economy, NHS, um, things that I I thought were important, um, but it was very hard to, it was very hard to to stay on a strategy. It was a a place where you could get your lines out, but it was very hard to say, well, we're going to do this subject come what may, because something else could be... In the in the papers, I think the other thing that Blair said to me, which was such a so correct, and this is what people get wrong about prime minister's questions, is prime minister's questions reflects what's happening in politics. It doesn't really drive it. So, in other words, if you're up, the narrative is with you. Your own side is feeling good. Yes, you're, it's so much easier to win than if you're down in the polls, you're having a nightmare, and you know then you the kind of What's, what's outside the House of Commons, Jay, but kind of seeps into it. Yes. You know what I mean? So when you were doing it, you had Cameron there. Cameron would get really angry. Yeah, and it, would, it, it, that would be a success, actually, if he went, you know, be true. Yeah. <laughs> so you're throwing grenades at him, but next to you, you've got Ed Balls, who's yeah. doing the Flashman and, and yeah. just shouting the whole time. He was a good sledger. He was like the Shane Warne. He was good to have, <laughs> it was definitely good to have him on your side, sort of, you know... Chucking the insults and sort of winding, and he was good at winding Cameron up. Because when, when he was here, he said that he would do it sometimes, then would reflect on his own behaviour and think, "I don't want it." And he, he said, I think "He was lying." I think. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he really did. I think he enjoyed it too much. I think I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not misremembering this, but I think he says in his book, or he might have said it here, that there were times when he'd sort of be a bit calmer. Maybe you'd wanted him to be calmer, and then halfway through a session, you'd give him a nudge and sort of get him going again. Yeah, sometimes. I think if it was going, if it was going, I, you know, he, you know, he, he, he was, but he was good. He was a good sledger. My biggest, my, the, 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 the sort of slightly bizarre life that his prime minister's question. There was one time. And it was after, it was, I was in a bad patch, which doesn't exactly sort of distinguish it from my leadership. But, uh, I, I, was in a ba- I was in a bad patch, and, and I got cold on the Monday. I often sound like I've got a cold, but I really did have a cold. And, uh, and then, and I said to Justine, my wife, on the Monday, I hope I'm not going to lose my voice. No, 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 she said it'll be fine. By Tuesday afternoon, it was, I was quite croaky. By Tuesday night, I, could not, I couldn't be heard. Oh, God. And it was not a time when I wanted to say, I can't do it, Harriet's going to do it, because they'd be saying he's having a nervous breakdown, you know, no wonder, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know Jill Cuthbertson, who, yeah. um, who used to work for me, and is a saintly person, and basically it ended up with her doing a sort of mercy dash around London to an NHS doctor at 1am to get me some steroids that opera singers take to get your voice back. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, I still didn't have a voice... 
And the people around me said, look, you're not going to be able to do it. And Harriet was on standby. And then by 11 o'clock, I sort of croaked back to brilliant, life brilliant. and was able to do it. And it went actually better than, than some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Are you able to... Because you, you clearly got a sense of humour about it in, in retrospect. At the time, were you able to laugh about it? Or was there an element of it that, was, that wasn't this funny for you? Um... I don't know, at the time, you're sort of in it. And it's, well, the funny thing is about being in it is that you kind of know that's the territory. And I, and I kind of was able, I'm not just saying this, I was able, when Prime questions went badly, I'd kind of get down about it. But I'd sort of th- the, the one good thing, going back to what I said earlier, is that, well, you know, by the Thursday, it's forgotten. And actually, look, the other thing is, it, this is why I think Prime questions is a problem for politics. It... it it never does, I don't think, the leader of the opposition or the Prime Minister much good. It could do you harm, yeah. but it doesn't really do you any good. Haig was brilliant at Prime Minister's questions. It did him no good at all, really. Mm. I mean, it kept him afloat, maybe, with his party, yeah. but it didn't really do him any good. So, so it's a sort of odd institution. The public don't really like it. Um, it looks like lots of blokes, tends to be blokes, not always, but shouting at each other. Um, and... And it doesn't really help the politicians. It, it, the only purpose it serves is scrutiny. And it does serve a, a scrutiny purpose. You know, if Donald Trump had to do Prime Minister's questions, <laughs> God knows what would happen. Uh, but, you know, Theresa May is held to account, and that's, and that's a good thing. Do you ever watch it from the back benches and watch Corbyn do it and think, oh, come on, mate. I'll let you into a secret. I don't really go. Not at all. Not at all. Unless, you, you, unless you're going to ask a question. Well, I've only ever asked... This is the other thing. I'd never asked a Prime Minister's question until I became the leader. Oh, God. Because I'd been a backbencher for about nine months, and yeah. I was never that sort of fussed about it. Yeah. And so I'd, the first, and then I did ask one on climate change before she went to see Trump. Um, but I sort of had enough of it, really. I don't, I don't... I sort of think that's one privilege as next leader not to have to go to PMQs. Was it like, like going back to an old school, like... You'd be you'd like moved... flashbacks. Well, well, that you'd moved on. Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, kind of. I actually think, I, I think uh, to be honest, when I watched the one with May, I was quite surprised. I don't mean to be party political about this, but I was quite surprised how bad she was at it compared yeah. to Cameron. I mean, Cameron was really good at it. Mm. I mean, he was a bastard in the way he did it, <laughs> but he was really good at it. I mean, he, he was, totally yeah. abused the whole notion of it. He just would ask me questions. Uh, you know, he would just think up good insults. He wouldn't spend any time thinking about the argument. I, I think the thing I always got wrong was I thought the argument really mattered, not the joust. He yeah. only cared about the joust. Yeah. Um, he'd smack me around the head. Uh, <laughs> On things, I remember. I remember there was this guy called Paul Flowers. I don't know whether you remember. It was something to do with the co-op, and basically he got done oh, in, yes. in the mail or something. Yes, I mean, the, what honestly, was it? honestly, and yeah, what basically, was the... so you know, we were prepping for prime minister's Crystal questions. Methodist, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, well remembered. We were prepping for prime minister's questions. Uh, Aisha Hazarika, who's a, who's a comedian in her own right now, she was a, one of the people who prepped me for it. We must have spent five minutes on Paul Flowers. I said, well, I met the guy twice. He was on some business committee with Ed Balls. Anyway, I come in and like six questions. He just smacks me around the head about Paul Flowers. Like he's my best buddy. And I sort of, you know, I live with Paul Flowers. And I just kind of, that was one of the times I just thought, what has gone on here? I just, I came out slightly sort of dazed, really. Sometimes people have a cordial relationship with their opposite number. There'll they'll be, be back channels open between yeah. prime ministers and leaders of the opposition. Away from yeah. the Commons, what yeah. was your relationship with Cameron I mean, the, sp- <laughs> the way I'd characterise it is better than Gordon's relationship <laughs> with him, which is a really low bar, because I think they sort of... 
they kind of loathed each other. Uh, Gordon certainly loathes him. Uh, um, and so better than Gordon, but sort of not like best buddies. I mean, I thought for the country, it was kind of important for us to be able to, if there were national security things or whatever, and we did talk about those things from time to time, uh, he would call me in. We talk, you know, we'd sort of, you know, engage in a sort of civilized, in a civilized way. Northern Ireland, we talked about, but you know, there were things we talked about, yeah. and so it was important. And I also think, look, something maybe about me, which is, I, I think, I can't remember who said this. It was probably some nasty dictator, but uh, <laughs> ha- you know, hating your enemies clouds your judgment. Mm. Oh, ha- opponents rather yeah. than enemies. I wouldn't say enemies, but hating your opponents clouds your judgment. You know. You don't need to hate him. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't need to hate him as a person. You can hate what he's doing to the country, disagree with it, but you don't need to kind of... The personal animus never gets you never gets you that far. So what was it... Because I remember Gordon hating him. I remember there was one occasion where... I think it was Gordon against George Osborne when Osborne was Shadow Chancellor. Yeah, I don't think he likes him much either. No, he, I mean, he hated the pair of them. He, I think he threw something... threw a report at him across the, house, the floor of the House of Commons. No, no, that's the people who advised Gordon that he threw things at, actually, not George Osborne. <laughs> Uh, but he, he chucks it. I think they're asking some some reporter a copy of it. Gordon sort of threw it at him. And there was what was it about? Was it just the fact that they were posh boys and privately educated, or was there something? Was there something more about them? What, why was he so irritated by? Them? Why was Gordon so irritated by? Them? Yeah, I don't know. You better get him on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think he didn't like what Cameron was doing, but you know. Um, you know, we're obviously different uh, people. Look, I, you know, I, I sort of resented lots of what Cameron Osborne did, but I somehow, I don't know, it's, a per, it's partly a sort of personality thing. I just sort of think you got to kind of, you know, there's, it, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help you to get into a rage with your political no. opponents. Uh, so you worked for Gordon. Did he ever throw anything at you? Uh, not, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nope, he didn't, to be fair to him. Um, I mean, objects <laughs> flew round rooms in my presence, but not directly, <laughs> directly uh, at me. I think he went through a number of mobile phones. I think, <laughs> and they were the big old ones as well. Uh, uh, um, yeah. What was he? I mean, people who work for me have a very conflicted eye sense that they, they they totally accept that his faults, but there's also a great warmth and respect for him, isn't there? Yeah, definitely a huge loyalty, Jim. Um, look, I, in a way, I, I suppose one way I think about it is for the people who were around Blair or Brown, it was an extraordinary political apprenticeship. Yeah. You know, and there's things you learnt about, you know, maybe not the right things to do, but uh, the chucking. Uh, <laughs> but, but the things you learnt about the, you know, the, the, and the things I learnt from Gordon were his intellect. So for him and, and Blair... You know, politics wasn't like, let's just do the right presentation. I think sometimes people get that wrong about, about them. Uh, they genuinely, particularly Gordon, and I think Blair would acknowledge this, you know, it was getting to the nub of the sort of intellectual problem that you were trying to solve, the political problem. You, were, you know, he's a deep thinker, and I think that was very admirable. And also his dogged, dogged determination. I mean, that, you know, honestly, he would sort of go the extra mile to get his way. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I think Blair found that maddening, and sometimes yeah. it was good for the country. Yeah. And, a, and a certain political bravery. I mean, I was part of his um, decision to raise taxes for the NHS in the early 2000s. Other European leaders around the world were not doing that. Yeah. Uh, it was planned very methodically, in a Gord, you know, as Gordon would do. 
I think people feel very... I'm not sure the public really have come to a settled view about him. The, the sort of politics moved so quickly, really, that people really remember... Well, Thatcher. he looked a lot better in retrospect. I mean, yeah. you know, when people now look back at Cameron, yeah. who will be remembered for Brexit, basically, um, and May, you know, suddenly their predecessor, Gordon, people start saying, well, hang on a minute, he did this on the financial crisis and all that, and he had his flaws, but, you know... There was, I think it's in the Ronsley book... Um, you had a nickname amongst the playwrights. The emissary from the planet Fuck. <laughs> uh, uh, Is that true? Yes, absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, uh, am I allowed to swear on this of course, podcast? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Which is your uh, I was. I was. <laughs> I was the emissary, and in a way, look, there's a. It's because I, you know, I had my. Have my had and have my disagreements with Tony Blair, but I, I, I suppose it goes back to what I said earlier, um, which is I sort of saw it as my job duty to be the person who could get on with both sides. Yeah, and it's sort of true today. You know, I was just saying to Matt before we came on. You know, I could have a meeting with Tony Blair one week and Jeremy Corbyn the next, and I talked to them both, and you know, I think they've both got important things to say. Um, and I sort of think that's kind of, for me, that's part of being Labour. And it's, it, I suppose it's an important part of having led the Labour Party. So few people will ever yeah. do it. Very few yeah. of them are, are currently alive. You've got a responsibility, haven't you, to, to the party, really. To, did each of them know that you talked to the other one? Did Definitely. Did they ever say, so what's he been saying? <laughs> uh, no, I sort of encourage them, but I would encourage them both to sort of talk to each other. Can you imagine how profound it would be? If they figured something out behind the scenes and did some sort of joint event together, or in fact, they I'm tried to. I'm not even sure a joint event. I think, look, the, oh, the, way, the way I. You could sell tickets, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe coming on this podcast. Yes. Uh, I suppose the way I think about it is it's a bit like what you said, but maybe in a different way, which is if you're leading the Labour Party, because there are very few people who've done it, yeah. you might as well get their advice. Yeah. Because whether you agree with them or disagree with them, um, you know, they've gone through the very unique pressure cooker, extraordinary thing. And I think nothing really prepares you for the pressure cooker of it. And Well, there's so many parts of it. Promises questions are a big part. But there's so many other parts of the job. And then when you lead a party into a general election, mm-hmm. and that election, 2015, I mean, it already feels like it was ages ago. It was most remarkable about it. But that, that was a 50-50 election. That could have gone either way, sure. you know. And... Uh, I don't know how true the accounts are, but on the night of the election, perhaps you'd felt that you had got over the line at one point. What was your... Well, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that the, all of the evidence that we had, and this is why I hate opinion polls, uh, <laughs> all of the evidence we had during the course of that day and indeed the days leading up to it was that it was sort of moving in our direction. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, everybody's sort of wise after the events. So some people say, well, it wasn't true on the ground or whatever. Um... But so it looked like it, you know, if you had a sense of it, it was that it was going to be, we were going to do better than them. And, you know, I think there's a story, and it's been confirmed to me by people around Cameron, that um, they thought, he and Osborne, I think, thought that they had lost. They went through a phase in that evening before the exit poll, um, thinking that they had lost. 
Because it's a remarkable thing to to get that close to Downing Street. And obviously you're talking to civil servants, you're deciding who's going to be in your cabinet. I mean, you'd probably take your shadow cabinet in, but deciding what maybe other staff you'd bring in. There must be part of you that you're obviously trying to keep sensible and keep calm, but there must be part of you that goes to bed the night before thinking, I might be Prime Minister. Well, I didn't go to bed, but... uh, (laughs) uh, But the... um, Kind of, although... I was sort of quite careful about not measuring the curtains. I didn't sort of just say that publicly, but I was quite... I think I was... It doesn't mean to say that it wasn't a terrible, terrible disappointment, put it mildly. Uh, but, But I was quite careful internally not to be thinking... You know, uh, here's how it's going to... I mean, yeah. Yeah, there was planning going on, but but with a certain... I had a certain compartmentalisation of it. Because partly because I thought you've got to keep going to the line and then see what happens. But I, in a funny way, you say it feels a long time ago. It feels a long time ago to me, too. Yeah. I mean, the first two years after the election, after the 2015 election, were pr- I found pretty difficult. Um, but somehow 2017, the 2017 election... The sort of moment that happened, it felt like a bit of a, I felt like a little bit of a weight had been lifted, yeah. because the last election wasn't my election, if you like, yeah. and partly because of what happened at the twenty seventeen election and all kinds of other things which we may get into. But do you? I mean, part of you must feel massively vindicated on energy prices. You were called redhead. Now the Tories yeah. are pretty much, yeah. you know, at least copying the yeah. the. the, the, the the, the principle of what you've yeah. done, if, if not yeah. the, the detail of the policy, and various other areas as well. You were trying to move the Labour Party to the left, yeah. and people were telling you yeah. that was suicide. Yeah. Corbyn's moved it further to the left than you yeah. were, and, and, and done well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you changed the rules that allowed Corbyn to become leader. Yeah. You must think, actually, will history be... Is history already being kinder to you? I mean, Martin, Justine said to me after the election, don't do coulda, shoulda, woulda, i.e., you know, here's all the things I could have done, you know, I should have done this, I should have done that. Um, and it's hard not to do that. I suppose doing a sort of honest appraisal, um, you know, I feel like the things I came to say, came to do in terms of the political debate, the things you said, you know, that inequality was a problem, that predatory companies were a problem, that the next generation young people, you know, I call it the British promise. I think she, Theresa May now calls it the British dream. The next generation <laughs> should do better than the yeah. last. Yeah. Those those themes are important. I think being self-critical, you know, if I think back, and this is kind of contrary to, as you say, what, what was the critique after the election, I probably wasn't bold enough. Mm. In other words, I probably should have gone for... I, I, I was slightly felt I was bolder on the analysis and the prescriptions. I'm proud of the manifesto of 2015, but clearly Corbyn went further. Yeah. On a lot of things, but in a way, look, I, I didn't feel I don't feel I would have been saying this to you a year and a year and a half ago. But I feel uh, honestly that I feel like I've moved on from it. It feels like another world. It happened. I didn't win, but as I said on the day, I resigned, and I didn't. I didn't kind of, you know, I, I kind of meant it, but it didn't feel it at that moment. There's lots of things you can do, not as a leader of the Labour Party, yeah. to make a contribution to the ideas you care about. And there's still, you know, even when you lose, there's still huge affection for you there and the, the party machinery and, and obviously millions of people voted for Labour under your leadership. Yeah. There'll be people, I'm sure, that stop you and in People the are very nice. I mean, yeah. one of the things that was hard actually after the election was that uh, I'd meet people in the street and some of them would start crying about how upset they were <laughs> that, we'd lo- that we'd lost. And they'd say things to me like, oh, when that exit poll came out, it was terrible, wasn't it? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, it wasn't great for me either, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, 
And I remember walking to a, going to have lunch with somebody, and I think it was sort of near Oxford Street or something, and this guy literally started sort of hugging me in, like, in tears. It was like a few months after the election. And I, was, and I said to the person I was having lunch with, I, sorry, I, I just had to go and you know, console the guy who was really upset about having, <laughs> us having lost the election. So, but people, but, but in serious, all seriousness, people are very nice. And I think one of the... If anyone in the audience is thinking about being a politician, I think one of the, 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 one of the most important qualifications is that you quite like people. Yeah. Um, because actually, I really like... I, I, I think you get a much more positive view of Britain from being the leader of the Labour Party. People are much nicer to you uh, than you would expect. Uh, they are uh, sort of polite. If they don't agree with you and they think you're a tosser, they probably don't come up to you. But... You know, I think it gives you a very positive view of the country. It doesn't give you a Daily Mail view of the country. It gives you a yes. very positive view of the country, actually. You did get egged at one point, which is a sort of right of passage. Twice, actually. <laughs> twice. Oh, twice? Yep. Uh, once... It was the one in the market when it was all quite Yeah, the close. market didn't go well. Um, but, that was... <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's what's so interesting about yeah. narrative, right? Yeah. It's so interesting, this. Because I got egged on the day of the... <clears throat> On the day I did really well in a set of local elections, nobody cared about the egg, and the narrative about the egg was he even dealt with the egg well. You did? Yeah. I remember Right, it. that was the first one. Yeah. The second one, things were going pretty shit, really. Yeah. And, uh, and I got egged, and it was like, and he's now been egged. Yeah. You know, what a, what, yeah. what a complete bozo the guy is. Yeah. Um, bacon uh, and egg. Bacon and egg. <laughs> very good. Uh, I wondered how you'd get to it. <laughs> Uh, it's slightly tortuous. Uh, uh, um, so, anyway, it's sort of... It kind of slightly comes with, the ter- you know, comes with the territory. Do you feel... Because I get the sense watching you now, and I know it's very different because you're not leader of the Labour Party, but you just feel more comfortable in your own skin now. Is that just because I'm viewing you through the prism of the media, or do you think that actually you've been able to just be yourself and show a few a more... combination of both, I think. I mean, there's a truth to it, and then there's a sort of... The way I think about this is I should have been less constrained, Um, absolutely, but, and this is not a sort of excuse, but, um, you know, as a leader of a political party, you are under scrutiny for every word you say. You know, I can call Donald Trump an absolute moron on Twitter these days. Nobody cares that much. If you're leader of a Labour Party and you call them an absolute moron, it's not, you know, Jer- even Jeremy Corbyn doesn't do that because you've got to be slightly careful. Yeah. And also, if you're leader of a Labour Party, you are operating in a kind of political combat zone because you have a whole set of newspapers who, you know, you know this is what the journalists are paid to do. Wake up in the morning, how can we do Ed Miliband in today? Yeah. Or how can we do Jeremy Corbyn into that? I mean, that is what their job is. And in fact, Rupert Murdoch came in during the April... I find this a compliment. He came to the uh, Sun, I think it was, in the April 2015 election, and he's like, what the hell are you guys doing? You're not being tough enough on Miliband. You know, the fate of our newspaper depends on this. And so you know, that is what it's, that's what it's like. Because you took a very brave decision to take on Murdoch. Which yep. it, and you yep. made it a lot easier for Corbyn to do that now, and maybe... The change in social media just made it easier anyway and the decline in influence. But still, taking on Murdoch before an election that was winnable yeah. was, was a high-risk manoeuvre, really. Yeah, and it's funny the way these things happen. I mean, for people who don't remember, it was around the hacking of Millie Dowler's phone in 2011 and the revelations that there'd been. And uh, I remember the day before... It's, it's, it's odd the way these things come, out, come about... 
uh, the day before, I went to a meeting in the House of Commons with House of Commons researchers, and um, this uh, it was I was not having a good time of it. And uh, it was there'd been these strikes, and I'd done this terrible, disastrous interview where I'd repeat the same answer oh, five yes. times. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. go and watch it on YouTube. You probably already have gone <laughs> yeah, yeah. watch it on YouTube. And I remember this guy, this House of Commons researcher, saying to me. Um, uh, he worked for a Labour MP, saying to me, I mean, look, I don't even care about the strikes, he said, but I just want you to be, like, bold. I want you to, like, commit and be bold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next day, Millie Dowler's phone, the hacking came out. And then, you know, you've got very little time to work out what you're going to do. But I, I had my sort of media people around. They said, look, you're going to be asked the question, should Rebecca Brooks um, go? And if you say she's got to go, it's war. Yeah. It's war with the Murdochs, Right. Um, but, you know, it happened on her watch. We don't know what, what her responsibility, what, what, what her knowledge was at that point. But, uh, you know, you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to make a decision. And I remember it was actually Aisha said to me, look, Ed, you've got to make strong choices. And, you know, in a way, I think, I think that's the sort of biggest lesson I learned about political leadership is that you've got to make strong choices. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the point of being there. In a way, that's... Maybe I learned that as time went by and the energy companies and some of the other decisions I took were Europe, you know, not having the referendum on Europe. I had lots of people in my shadow cabinet saying to me, you know, you're going to have to agree to Cameron's referendum or some version of Cameron's referendum because it's the right, you know, it's, it's, it's electorally necessary and maybe some of them thought it was the right thing to do. And I just ended up thinking, I just don't believe in this thing. I just don't think it's the right thing for the country because I think there are bigger priorities for the country, the NHS, child poverty, young people. You know, we've got to concentrate on those things. I actually, at that point, thought, well, we'd win a referendum. Um, But I remember Tony saying to me, look, I talked to him about it, and he said, look, you know, if you agree to this, um, you're going to win the election, walk up Downing Street with a sinking feeling in your stomach because you're going to be thinking, I've got this effing referendum that I've now got to do. Anyway. So he, he cancelled... <laughs> he was right about that. Yeah. And I didn't really, in my heart of hearts, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. The yeah. only reason to do it was political expediency. And yeah. I thought, I can't do this for political expediency. It's not the right thing for the country. I think what I hadn't realised completely, but I think I now realise more, is that those issues that I thought were more of a priority, like the NHS, like the economy, would bleed massively into the referendum. Yes. And that the referendum would become about those issues. Well, the NHS. Well, the NHS. But if I think about my constituents, you may... I don't want to mess up your order of questions here. But, I mean, if... Uh, uh, sorry, I, I just... But, I mean, I, you may want to get on to Brexit. But, yeah. but my constituency is one of the biggest Brexit constituencies, top five or six. And, you know, it's really important to understand this. Brexit was about immigration. It was about Europe. But it was so much deeper than that. Yeah. It was about 30 years of people feeling this economy, this... The, this society, this political system doesn't work for me. And, and in a way, those issues that I thought were more of a priority, that's what, what Cameron did was he turned a, a kind of 15% issue, an issue that 15% of the country cared about a lot, Brexit was low down the list, Europe, yeah. into one that like 75% of the country cared about. Because for them, like for my constituents, Brexit is a bigger thing now. It's, it's, it's attached to all kinds of other things about... Is the establishment listening? Is the political class listening? Am I going to be ignored again? So with Murdoch, did you, did you ever speak to him directly? I met him at a... Um, 
I met him at a drinks party, which I sort of nearly didn't go to and which I hadn't gone to. Uh, it was really sort of soon before it happened. And uh, it was like a big drinks party. I don't think he was too interested in me, to be honest. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was like the son's endorsement was heading in my direction if I hadn't taken him on. Um, but, you know, it was obviously a thing to, to, to uh, decide to sort of cross him because that wasn't the way politics had been done. That wasn't the way it had been done by Tony, or it wasn't the way it had been done by Cameron, or, or, or Gordon, for that matter. Um, but, you know, they, they weren't sort of naturally sympathetic to me. Do you think, do you ever think, oh, God, I wish I'd have gone easier on Murdoch, wooed him, and then maybe he'd have backed me? Or was there just absolutely no chance that he would have backed you over Cameron? I mean, I think it would have been the wrong thing to do, mm. and uh, I don't think he would have, I mean, I don't think he would have backed me. Uh, I, I, uh, you know... I think they weren't. It was sort of... Was there any p- and it is slightly supping with the devil. You know, it's sort of... You kind of... Yeah. Yeah, but the devil has great drinks. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Do you ever think... With, with the Murdoch thing, were you ever scared? Because they, they were powerful people on a global level. They'd hacked people's phones and done all sorts of other things. Did you ever think, actually, you're putting yourself in harm's way? No, I think I was p- putting myself in political harm's way. But, I mean, I, I, since the election, I've been... <laughs> carrying on the sort of uh, trying to hold him to account with this bid that he's making for Sky. And he said on the other day, you know, he was trying to explain why it was taking so long. And he said, I've got lots of enemies in this country. And I thought, well, you probably think you're me, mate. Uh, um, But, you know, I'm doing it not because I have a personal animosity to him, but because I think, you know, no one media owner, that's what actually the law says, no one media owner should be, have too much power. Um, and he did have too much power, and he was too close. And, you know, in the end, Cameron had to recognise that, although we've sort of not really... He's not really carried through on the promises he made to the victims. But, but you know, they acted with... Imp- phone hacking happened because they thought they were untouchable. Mm. And that isn't good for any society when, you know, a group of people have huge power without any sense that they're accountable for that power. And that's what had happened, because Murdoch thinks he sort of rules the roost... And, you know, that mentality, psychology, feeds through to the people in his newspaper, fed through to the people in his newspapers, as well as them being under huge commercial pressure. You took him on in, in policy terms. You've yeah. also taken him on in, in, in a different way because you host a podcast now that's, that's very yeah. successful. And there's a rise of new media, whether it's social uh, and online. There's, there's the rise in podcasts as a medium, and this, this show's obviously uh, ran for many years as a podcast. Um, do you feel that that it is... It still your... does, I thought. Oh, it still does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, what was, was my tenses wrong there? You said it ran for many years as a podcast. Did I? I think I so. Even, I cry, yeah. Is that wrong? Gone. Was I wrong? Yeah. No. I think you're right. It's the present. <laughs> a profound moment of it's self-doubt pre- there. It's the present. It's sort of... You know. <laughs> It's still running as yeah, a podcast. Still as far running as I'm as aware, podcast. we're still yeah. there. We'll um, cut that bit out on the podcast. I don't know why I'm in doubt. I am the means of production, so I exactly. don't know how to sack myself. Exactly. Um, Clause one. It's still, <laughs> it's still, it's still, um, it, it still runs as a podcast. Uh, but is, is that, are you, with the podcast thing, is that just because you're interested in ideas? Because reasons to be cheerful about yeah. exploring ideas and things. Yeah. Or is it also... You can download it on all good podcasts. Ah, <laughs> uh, sorry. No, and you should. It's a great podcast. But is that, is that also a way of being part of new media, of reaching people and getting your message direct to the public? Yeah, and in a way, it, did, it sort of came about through happenstance. I was interviewed during the 2015 election by my 
current co-host, my, my co-host, uh, current, current co-host. Current, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's terrible. He's, he's quite paranoid as well. Uh, but by my co-host, uh, it's you that got me into it with your past thing. Uh, uh, by my co-host, Jeff Lloyd, and uh, he, um, uh, he, you know, it was it went really well. Uh, as you know, when quite a lot of things weren't going so well, we just did a very relaxed interview. And he came to me in uh, about a year ago and said, "Look, I've had this idea. Everyone's very depressed. Brexit, Trump. Uh, they don't know where Labour's going. This is before the 2017 election. Why don't we do a podcast about ideas? There must be good ideas out there." And then I did this Jeremy Vine. I did I filled in for Jeremy Vine for a week on Radio Two, and I and it sort of got me onto the idea that you could mix serious and sort of more funny and, and that, you know, ideas didn't need to be really boring yeah. uh, and they could, they could be accessible. Uh, and I suppose Jeff was onto it much earlier than I, um, much earlier than I was. And so it, it's a way of me, because ever since 2015 I've been thinking, well, look, I need to find a way of contributing ideas, mm. not as leader, as a backbencher, and how do I do that? And I've been sort of, you know, searching around for what is the way to do it, think tank, etc., and actually, this is a way to reach a lot of people with ideas and also to say that there are positive, optimistic sort of things that can be done for the country. And I learn a lot doing it. And it puts you in a different category, doesn't it? Because it's, you're kind of, you've obviously done Radio 2 for a week. You're a podcast host. I mean, as a child, did you ever dream of being a, a radio host? Was that ever anything? I've got an embarrassing been? admission. This is my sort of William Hague-ish uh, admission, which is that I was on a programme called Young London, as a teenager, uh, if anyone tries to find the tapes, I'll be very angry. Uh, um, sort of rev- reviewing films and like music and stuff, and it was just came about because you, it was on LBC. Yeah. Uh, you used you used to phone in, and then they asked the people to phone in and do it. So, like you know, thirty years ago, I was sort of doing this, and um, I quite enjoyed radio as a medium. I've got face for radio after all, <laughs> uh, and um, you know, it, it was um, so. So I, I sort of did it a long time ago. And was that a regular feature or was that just a one-off? No, I did it for about two years, sort of every two or three weeks. And Clive Bull, who is still on yeah, LBC, yeah. was the host of it. And does he, have you sp- spoken to him since? Does he remember? Uh, uh, I, he does remember. I, I spoke to him ages ago, but I, I want to sort of make contact again with him. So what sort of stuff did you review on there? What, albums and films? Albums, films... And did you have like, any catchphrases? Did you say it's Edmund Catch Catchphrases. No, no, I wasn't yeah. quite... I was just a guest, so, so yeah. he did... You know, he, he was a presenter. It was to try and get sort of youth uh, involved in, uh, in radio, and I was sort of what passed for youth. Uh, uh, I wasn't a very typical youth, but anyway. So what, in what way were you not a typical youth? Oh, God, where do I start? Uh, well, as I've said on the podcast, I, you know, most kids played Monopoly. We played a game called Class Struggle. It's uh, uh, a real game? A board game, You're yeah, kidding yeah. me. It's a real game. It's a real Class game. Struggle. Worker and the Capitalists. So what? <laughs> was it a sort of similar structure yep. to Monopoly? Yeah, yeah, yep. It was like a satire on Monopoly, or a well, not satire. It's very serious, Matt. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, I think you had, the square number eighty-two was the revolution. Uh, <laughs> and we actually got for the podcast. We got a, a, an edition back. I couldn't find ours, and uh, and we played it for our Christmas edition. So, uh, so no, it was a very political upbringing. I mean, that's why it was sort of an unusual upbringing. Very political upbringing. And, you know, the reason David and I went into politics was because, you know, my parents refugees. My dad left uh, Belgium in 19... Jewish refugees. My dad left Belgium in 1940. 
um, you know, walked a hundred miles uh, to Ostend to get one of the last, from Brussels to get one of the last boats, hundred kilometers, I think, uh, to, to get one of the last boats out of Belgium with his father. Didn't sort of know where they were going, really. Um, ended up in Britain, um, and my mum then came after the Second World War, um, and uh, you know. They're not for the. My dad's no longer alive, but neither of them were religious people. But they were, I think, the wartime experience gave them a sense of the sort of preciousness of life mm. and the importance of. It sounds a bit corny, but leaving the world a better place. Now, my dad did it, tried to do it through teaching and uh, writing and being an academic. Um, but I think that sort of... And they didn't say to us, you've got to go and be involved in politics or anything. But it was just the, you know, the people who came through the house, the sort of... The, the, the kind of ethos was of sort of politics. And I, I mean, I remember, you know, you just meet... I met this, um, this amazing experience when I was 12 years old. Uh, I think I was 12. I met this woman called Ruth First, who had been my dad's student. She was married to the head of the South African Communist Party, Joe Slover, who later became a, a member of uh, Mandela's cabinet. And a few months after I met her in London, she was killed by a letter bomb sent by the South African secret police to Mozambique, where she was teaching. And, you know, I mean, that just has a profound experience on you as a kid when you come down one morning to find your parents both in tears because this, their friend's been blown up. Um, they couldn't get to him, Joe, because he was protected, but they could get to her. Um, and, you know, it, when you have that experience, you kind of make, you think politics yeah. really matters. Your dad was highly influential, still is highly influential, yeah. probably more influential as a, as a, on the current Labour leader, perhaps, in, in terms perhaps. of his politics than on, the, than on, than on your politics. Um, and obviously his legacy was something that was highly contentious mm. during your years, and the way that certain papers... Yeah, um, the treat. man who hated Britain. Was man, the, I mean, that's what the Daily Mail. Wrote. An incredible thing to say about somebody who'd chosen to come here and build a life here, and, and how disrespectful and lurid that all was. But there's a great video for you when I think it's at some you, you won an award, I think, for the Spectator or something, and you send a video message because you can't be there, and you say, uh, uh, "Currently, um, <laughs> <laughs> currently uh, in a dispute with." Uh, a, a, a tabloid, a British tabloid, about things they wrote about my dad. Uh, and then, it's not the Daily Mail you get out, it's the Sunday Sport. Exactly. And the story was, was it Ralph Miliband killed my hamster? Killed my kitten, yes. <laughs> and it's this spoof story. The he was a Belgian man. Uh, <laughs> whistling. Wh whistling a communist song. Or yeah, that's right, yeah. She said, I knew it was him because he was, he was sounded Belgian and he was whistling a communist song. But there's this, there's this great line about it where she goes, it, 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 he ran over my cat but with no remorse. And there's this great punchline. The red bastard. <laughs> <laughs> it was it is still it's still out there on YouTube. Well, the funniest, because we, I mean you, what made you think to do that? Um I didn't want to go to the awards. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, oh I don't know. I just sort of uh you know, I must have... It was, the male thing was very sort of current and, yeah. uh, um, I mean, that was just all very strange, what happened with the male, you know, it's just sort of... I mean, Paul Dacre, the editor of the male, just sort of obviously got it into his head. To, uh, it's interesting, though, psychology, because, you know, they wrote this piece saying the man who hated Britain um, and 
my it was just after the Lay Buddy conference. I, I was you know the, the basic instructions to my team were for God's sake, don't ring him. You know, I think we'd had a actually relatively successful conference, but just don't ring him. He needs to have some time off. And then on Saturday, I got texted by them saying, you've got to read the mail, there's this thing, da 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 um, And then I read it and thought, I'm not going to do anything. And then I sort of got really angry and thought, hang on a minute. Um, and I remember talking to David about it. And, and you know, it's just sort of like, oh, for goodness sake, come off it, you know. Um, because taking on your... You know, it's one thing to attack me, but don't attack my, you know, diseased father. Yeah. Um, and and then I tried sort of, you know, you then get into this thing where you're trying to say, can I just have a response? And then they said, yeah, we'll run the response. And I think all of the political staff of the mail were, were expecting the response just to be run cold and clean, and then they, they would die down. And then they ran it, and then they, like, you know, doubled down on it. So they ran it, and then, but with it, they said, we still believe he's a man who hated Britain, and, like, read the 14 pages on it type of thing. And and so it then became this sort of massive row, and then the Mail on Sunday, to sort of try, apparently to try and do, do me some good, I know this sounds hard to believe, they then sort of invaded my uncle's memorial service. So I was having this memorial service, my uncle who passed away, my father's brother-in-law, around the same time, and one of the reporters, like, came in and afterwards started talking to my cousins about how they felt about the Daily Mail. So it was like, you know, and, that, and I spoke out against them. So it just became this sort of thing. I just sort of like, oh, God, you know. A horrible thing to go through. Uh, and you say you spoke to David about it. So you were taking each other's calls at some We were. <laughs> um, how, one thing that I always thought was really unfair was the idea that you had no right to stand against your brother. Because, especially in the Labour Party, well, I don't know why it would be different for any other party, but in a party that believes in meritocracy... Why would one brother be allowed to stand and the other not? I always felt that was a deeply unfair narrative that was sort of hung... And still, some yeah. people are still hanging it around. Well, look, it? you know, and obviously different people have their own views on this. I mean, fundamentally, I think we were offering different things. I had a different perspective on New Labour and whether the need to move on from New Labour. Um, uh, it was hard. It was hard, particularly hard for him, obviously. I, I mean, we've sort of moved on from it. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he obviously living in New York, running this refu- important refugee charity. Um, so we sort of moved on, but it was, it was you know, it was tough. So did, did you have to think twice about standing? Did you yeah, think, God, this is really difficult because David really wants to? Of course. Uh, of course I did. Um, and, uh, you know, rightly, I think I suppose I, in the end I felt... Look, I feel I have something to say. It's not just I want to be leader. It's I want to be leader, but I have a distinct message. You know, I was proud of what the Labour government had done, but I felt there needed to be a moving on from new Labour. I felt there were issues about inequality, about the state of the country, which I felt I was better placed to address. And I thought in those circumstances, it's quite hard to say, well, I'm just not, I'm just going to sort of, you know, not, not you know, even though I think it felt like it was the right thing to do. So, so, yeah. In a way, the Corbyn victory has, has because the rules are different and all the rest of sure. it, has, has erased what a stunning victory your leadership victory was because you didn't start as the favourite. It was a difficult, long campaign. You're running against your brother and colleagues that you respect, all from a sort of similar generation, and you... you, you have this stunning victory, which had Corbyn not won in the manner that he did twice, people would say, wow, sure. you know, you follow, if you want to be leader of the Labour yeah. Party, talk to Ed Miliband, because he, yeah. he knows how to win that. Win I mean, that his game. was more surprising. <laughs> yeah, it was. was it was surprising. more surprising. Um, his was more surprising, and yet, you know, 
with the passage of time, sort of less surprising. I mean, in the following sense, that I think one of the big things about politics at the moment, this is what the podcast is trying to address, Brexit, Trump, Corbyn's surprising sort of relative success in 2017, I think speaks to the sense that people have that they want big change. Yeah. And it's being expressed in different ways, but I think that's what he was speaking to. And in a way, you know, in 2015, there was a sort of, you know, should we go to the right of Ed or should we go to the left of Ed? That was sort of the choice that ended up being posed, yes. whatever the intent, you know, that might not have been the intentions of the candidates. But that sort of what became the choice. And the party opted for that. And then people thought, well, that's just the party, you know, they, they've opted that. But I think in a way, I'm not saying the country, you know, made, has made its final decision, but, but I think the sort of country's... That, that sense of radicalism and boldness, I think, did speak to the country in unexpected ways in 2017. Do you, how much do you think the messenger matters? Because I remember interviewing Andy Burnham in Liverpool a few years, just after he'd lost to Corbyn yeah. in the 2015 leadership election, and he said, actually, all the things that Corbyn is saying are things that he's been saying for years, but when Andy Burnham says it, it just doesn't resonate in the same way. It's like Corbyn looks like an outsider, behaves like an outsider... You know, Andy had done PPE, had been a special advisor, had been a minister, he's photogenic, he's young. Yeah. God, he's photogenic. And he, you know, <laughs> really, I can't, I mean, he is a good looking, anyway. He is, so yes, he, <laughs> but his point was actually, he was, it doesn't matter what Andy really said, like Corbyn embodies change in a way that no one else in that election did. And partly you, that's true. I mean, partly that is true. And I think we're in the era, I mean, he is, you know, he's in some sense. You know, he's been an MP for a long time, but he is a consummate political outsider, yeah. uh, Jeremy. And I think that is definitely was part of his appeal. I think part of his appeal was the sense of this is not a man who cares about focus groups or opinion polls. Yeah. He's had very you know consistent views for a long time, and he's sticking to his you know guns and his yeah. principles. Um, but I think it was also the to be fair to him, it was a policy. You know, his radicalism on tuition fees or rail, you know, I think, I think that's... And, and it's really interesting during the 2017 election because, you know, it definitely started off... I'm not saying Theresa May would have got a majority of 100 at the, right at the beginning of the campaign, but she would have done a lot better. Mm. And you saw, I saw as a constituency MP, the sort of thing, the narrative moving from constituents saying, well, you know, I've got this media portrayal of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, I can't vote Labour. And suddenly it would be saying, well, hang on a minute, I really like what he's, some of the things he's saying. You know, he's really... He's really come into his own in the election. And by the end of the election, I was in my local miners' welfare on the Sunday before the election. I met a couple of people I knew. And I said, what's going to happen then? And um, one of them said, tiny Tory majority. The other one said, hung parliament. And I was like, really? I said. <laughs> and these were the same people who before were telling, six weeks earlier were telling me, you've not got a chance. And I was thinking, God. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, are you sure about that? Yeah, 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 hung parliament, they were saying. I said, well, we'll see whether you're right. And they were. <laughs> they were right, yeah. Um, so Corbyn has benefited to a large extent. Part, part of his success is, is the, the, the leadership rules of the Labour Party that were changed under your leadership, which so many people supported at the time and said, this they is did. great. You know, breaking the stranglehold of the unions. Yep. And not just people on the left of the party, people on the right Indeed, of the party. Indeed, they were the ones who particularly proposed the £3 membership. And all, you know, so there's a, there's a, there's a, that's all caught up in, you know, there's a lot of issues around all that. Do you ever... I mean, it's hard to argue that Labour being a mass membership party is a bad thing, but do you sometimes look at the direction of the party, the tone of it, and think, oh, I shouldn't have done that? No. 
Um, no, look, I, I mean, the, the thing about Corbyn, we've got to remember, is he won in every section, right? Yes. He won among the members, he won among the union-affiliated supporters, and he won among the registered supporters, yeah. both times. But not the MPs. But not the MPs. <laughs> but but they would do now. the big change was to move to a party where the membership, the wider membership, elected the leader. And look, the Tories did it, even the Lib Dems did it, even UKIP do it, as far as I know. The, the old electoral college felt like a relic of the past. I think yeah. that was sort of generally felt across the party. Um, but but so, so that's the sort of technical answer. But I think the sort of... I think the, the, the more deep answer is he was speaking to something. And he is speaking to something. He's speaking to a desire for, for something different, for change... For, for, you know, big ideas. And I think that's the sort of, you know, in, in a way I think part of the, maybe the undervalued, or not undervalued, but sort of uh, rare commodity in politics is humility. And I think you, one, we all have to have a bit of humility about it because, you know, the whole political class, all of the Tory MPs, the vast majority of Labour MPs, all of the pundits would have said, if you'd said to them, you know, a year ago, we're going to have a general election in June. Jeremy Corbyn's going to get 40%. They'd have like, come off it. Don't be ridiculous. I mean, honestly, it would have been sort of, you know, we're going to take you off. I mean, you know, it's... it's, it's I mean, don't you think? If I oh, said to oh, you, absolutely. if we'd been doing this a year ago, if I'd sort of, you know, accepted your invitation earlier, uh, uh, um, you know, and I'd said to you, Matt, you know, Jeremy's going to get 40 you, I mean, I wouldn't Everyone. have said it. I wouldn't have said no. it. No, I mean, this is the... You know, you talk about how quickly he's been able to change things. It's quite remarkable. And he has a, a core of support that absolutely love him. Yep. You went through a bit of that with Millie fandom. Yep. Um, Mini when, version of it, yeah. Uh, a Millie version of it. Millie version. Uh, did you... When that sort of stuff happens, when it's not from the party machinery, when yeah. just members of the public are saying, yeah. I really love this guy. Yeah. And... You know, I think he's hot, and then they're, they're photoshopping. My wife thought it was a case of mistaken identity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Did she really? Yeah, yeah, no. I, I convinced her it was true. Uh, they were photoshopping your head onto, like, you know, bodybuilders' bodies, and, yeah. like, there was this kind of sexual yeah. element to some of it. Like, what, what I did it? have this thing after the election, and uh, 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 Lindsay, who works with me, is here, and uh, somebody, there, somebody got some attention because they had a picture of me a young lady a tattooed on her inner thigh. Uh, and I said, oh, shall I respond to her on Twitter? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> wow. So I didn't. Yeah. Have you seen the picture? Uh, no, I, I sort of, well, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> don't look at those sort yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My God, because I've seen a few people have Corbyn tattoos on the internet, but I didn't know there was a... Yeah, is that, as far as you're aware, is that the only tattoo that someone's done? As far as I know, yeah. I'm not recommending it. No. Don't do this at home. It must be a nice compliment when people are particularly nice. Or the look, I think. I What's think... it like being a sex icon? I don't think that's quite me, really. Uh, uh, you tell me, Matt. Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, look, I think what's what's makes a difference, and I think this is true of anybody in politics, whatever their party, is when people say, you know. I you know, felt quite inspired by something you said, something you did as leader, or something you're doing now, or you know, what you're doing on the podcast. We get lots of... I mean, the, the great thing about the podcast, by the way, is available on all good podcast <laughs> apps, uh, is that we get... And it's deliberately like this. We get lots of Tories writing in, yes. saying we really like these ideas. 
um, you know, Lib Dems, Greens. I mean, we, we try and span the spectrum. And I'm quite conscious of the audience not just being Labour people. And, and I think in a way, that's partly why how political change happens when, you know, if you think about the great Blair achievements, you know... I often do. Yeah, yeah I know you do. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, you know, for example, LGBT rights, you know, that, that became an accepted part, you know, across the political spectrum. That's, in a way, the sign of achievement. Yeah. Um, or... Well, I was going to say peace in Northern Ireland, but you know <laughs> the, the the Brexit thing is 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 obviously problematic in relation to the Good Friday Agreement. But but you know overseas development when when Cameron accepted his pledge on zero point seven percent of of GDP. So so it, it, it you know that's kind of why I th- I think I think political change comes from you know sometimes your opponents accepting your ideas. I mean I, I completely agree with that. Um, and it's nice to know there are other podcasts out there that are, that are cross-party that have been inspired, perhaps, by, Absolutely. Uh, by, by other cross-party podcasts. Um, which is yours, which is still going. It know. is still going. Yeah. Yeah. Still, still going, going strong, still doing going, well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that always... And my co-host is permanent, I just <laughs> want to say, for the record. Well, but he might decide otherwise. Yeah, he, yeah. he might go the other way. Um, one of the things that he did that was a real a feat, just of memory, was those conference speeches... You know, Until the one that went wrong, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll forget to yeah, mention the deficit. Yeah, yeah. But what was your technique for remembering an hour-long speech? Don't know, really. Um, I, I remember waking up after doing the 2011 speech and thinking I should have done this speech from memory because I kind of know it in my head. And so that's why I did it in 2012 and 2013, 2014. Um, I found it, a, and I'd sort of done it a bit when I was Climate Change Secretary, uh, I found it a better way of connecting with the audience. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like your stand-up routine. You know, if you're reading it out, it's just... I think it's quite an old-fashioned way of doing a speech. Now, sometimes it's necessary, yeah. uh, as I have found to my cost. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, it is a way of saying what... I would put bits in, take bits out. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was a way of saying what you were feeling, not just sort of, uh, here's something that my advisors, you know, that we sort of crafted. And there's probably more adrenaline that way. Yep. Were, were there any times where you thought, oh, God, I've completely forgotten what's coming next? No, I mean, oddly enough, when I did the deficit one, I didn't know I'd forgotten it until at the end. Um, uh, I, re- I suddenly did remember what I, what, what after I'd walked off the stage. Um, a bit late, uh, it was. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean, it was, you know, in a way, it was felt like a kind of high wire act, but I never thought to myself, um, you know, it, it felt like a sort of natural thing to do. And I sort of thought, well, Cameron had done it, actually. Um, a few years earlier, but I kind of thought, well, um, it's this friend of mine, um, uh, it's a sort of name drop, this, but uh, Paul Greengrass, the film director. Oh, wow. um, He always used to say to me, people used to think that he sort of did some special prep with me or something, and he did, I did talk to him because he's a sort of master of narrative. And he used to always say to me this really important thing about the speech, he said, look, very few people get a chance to talk to the country about where the country's at and where they think it needs to go. And that's the way you've got to think about your conference speech. Yes. It's not a laundry list of policies. It's not just a, a kind of chance to hit the opposition. It's got to be... And once he said that to me, it seemed like such a... 
it was such a sort of obvious but really important point. It's yeah. a chance to talk to the country, and it is the one moment when leaders of the opposition really get heard outside an election campaign. Yeah. Because, and that's why the although it didn't work out, that's why the election campaign was important to me because it was a chance to, for, me to, people to, for me to be heard. And I think it was important for Jeremy as well. You heard unfiltered or more unfiltered. Yes. You know, yes, the male's there, yes, the son's there. But otherwise, as leader of the opposition, generally, you're sort of out of it a bit because the government's doing its things. Now, I think Brexit hung parliament, all that changed it a bit. But generally, your moments in the... You know, it used to really annoy me. People would say, well, why aren't you doing more? And I'd be thinking, God, I'm doing like one speech a week. I'm going out and doing this stuff. But it was very hard to get heard. And the, and the conference speech was always a moment to get heard. There were, I mean, there are, I would watch them at length, uh, but I watch every leader's speech at length. You know, the big, the big events for the party to be there, would you feel a sense of... Because politicians are actors, aren't they? At that level, you have to perform to some extent, whether you're just showing yourself. Would you think of it? As a gig? Mm, no, no, not quite, not exactly. I mean, I, I think the way, uh, again, it's the apprenticeship. Blair, Brown, Kinnock, I, I sort of had talked to them all and I'd seen, I mean, Kinnock used to do his, Neil used to do his speeches, he used to stay up all night the night before, right? Um, and uh, never sleep. Uh, it would be coming out of the printer ten minutes before he, you know, he'd be writing it ten minutes before before he would go on the stage, and he was brilliant. Um, Blair and Brown, you know, it, it was a sort of, it, it was a kind of. I can't really emphasise this to you enough. It would be three months. Tony would begin. Probably didn't say that to you, but uh, <laughs> the, the work on his conference speech, and similarly with Gordon, it wouldn't begin in September, like four weeks before the conference. It would begin in July. You know, it's like, because you're thinking, I think because of the Paul Greengrass point, this is your big moment to talk to the country. And I think they would see it. And I think this has sort of got into my head too. It's not just another speech that you do. This is the moment when you can roll out a new idea. So One Nation, I talked about in 2012. You know, the energy price freeze, the cost of living crisis in 2013. You know, it was a a sort of moment to to sort of frame the rest of the year. So it was like a big kind of production makes it does sound like a sort of artifice, but it was more, you know, you just really have to think it through as to what you were trying to say. The massive events. Um, I will open up the floor now to uh, questions, which so the house lights up. So I do indicate clearly, and we'll get a microphone to you. Yes, the lady uh, just... Yes, the lady there, if we can just get the uh, microphone. Let us know your name, and if we can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, we'll try and get one to One-sentence answers, oh, God. <laughs> Hi, it's uh, Sarah, and could you maybe, it's more of a request, could you do the napalm death screen oh thing? <laughs> so this was on Radio 2, you had a death metal singer. <laughs> that was terrible. Uh, I was terrible at the time. Can you do it? You go on, you try. It's the kind of... Is that... No? Oh, that's better. <laughs> Can you do it? <laughs> I think yours was best. Barney, actually. Barney, what's he was Barney from Napalm Death, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, it was. Um, I love that clip. Oh, thank you very much. It is a great clip. It, I got you. about an hour of stand up out of that. So thank Did you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Really? I should thank you for large yeah, parts of my career, exactly. actually, because I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, You should, I, definitely. Yeah. It makes me feel warm inside. I think if I ever buy a house, you'll have almost certainly paid for the That's deposit. That's excellent. <laughs> you have to come to the house for me. That's, that's what politics is all about <laughs> material for stand up comics. <laughs> 
Uh, right, any more questions of this area? Yes, gentlemen there. Um, hi, my name is Martin. Um, if you could pick one female Labour MP to be the next leader of the Labour Party, who would it be? Great question. Well, I'm definitely not going to get into that. That's sort of uh, the kiss of death for them. Uh, uh, um, look, I think we've got a huge number of talented people. Um, <laughs> Including, well, maybe five. Five or six? I know this is fatal to do this. Um, look, I, I, I think... Um, uh, I've become a politician. Uh, no, honestly, I think, I think we've got huge talent. And I think, I think what is... The thing I will say, and this is what Corbyn has said, is that lots of the people who were put into the roles uh, kind of unexpectedly have performed incredibly well. Um, and I think they deserve sort of support. But I'm not, I'm not going to get... I, I, I think it's not fair to them. OK, so by the sounds of things, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, the chap down here. I'll take it across if you want. There we are. Thank you very much, Tim. Cheers. There you go, mate. Thank you. Uh, so, Alice Nall Jacobs, uh, question on momentum. Are you in favour of momentum? Do you think it's a good thing? Would you have liked momentum to be in favour? Uh, would you have liked momentum to work for you when you were uh, uh, trying to become... It's minister? a good question. It's a, it's a good question. It's obviously very contentious in the party. Um, I, think, I think there are lots and lots of good things that momentum do. Um, so, there's an event that they do at the Labour Party conference called The World Transformed which was about ideas, and it's absolutely brilliant. I think what they did in the election campaign, working in marginal seats, um, and, you know, the odd thing about the election campaign, I was talking to somebody who works for the party about this, the party was following its polling for understandable reasons and was focused on Labour people keeping their seats. Momentum was focused on gaining Tory seats, and they did incredible things. Mm. I think some of the things that people do in, in Momentum's name, if it's about Bruce elections and stuff, I'm not, I'm not, I'm in favour of the party looking outwards, not inwards. Um, you know, so, but, but overall, I, I think it's been a force for, for, for sort of getting young people involved in the party, which I think is really important. And I think it's really important to understand who the people in Momentum are, because lots of people think, oh, you know, are they kind of just so people who were in the party 30 years ago and have suddenly come back in, or people who are expelled because they're militant. I mean, that is just not who they are. I mean, they're young people who are idealistic about politics. But they share some of the political attributes of the people that perhaps were in militant. They're not those people, but they're... I don't think they do, Matt. Politically, there's sort of, is there not an authoritarianism that goes I, with some of it? I mean, have you met... Have you gone to the world transformed? I don't dare. Conference? You should. <laughs> I think I'd honestly, be transformed. No, if but honestly, answer, honestly, honestly, you... Um, I'd be up for going, I would. You I should would. go, you should do oh, something But I used to go them. to events like that all the time. I used to be in the SWP, so I sort of... Is that right? Are you yeah. scarred by that? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see why. Uh, <laughs> But, but, but I think this is really important because... But I would go. Yeah, and, and actually what's interesting is that even the sort of right-wing commentators in politics yeah. say, look, fair play to the world transformed and what they do at conference. You know, they, they had people from across the, the party um, and, and, you know, it was interesting. So, somebody tweeted, this guy Jim Watson, who's now gone to be the Guardian's media editor, he tweeted, Momentum have a devilish plot to take over the Labour Party by making the fringe meetings a hundred times more interesting than they've ever been before. <laughs> and I think that's really important. The energy, yeah. uh, you really should go. I mean, you should find uh, a way of, do, of doing something with them. Or, because, you know, and, and in a way, uh, maybe I can be the sort of emissary from the planet fuck for you. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, because 
and, and I think this goes to something you said, just to sort of butter you up for a second, uh, in the Clive Lewis one that you did. Um, you said, you know, I just wish the Blairites and the Corbynites could, yeah. could sort of talk more. And it's what I said earlier. Yeah, it's good. You know, I, I think... I think Wisdom doesn't lie in one political party. It doesn't lie in one part of one political party. And I slightly think... And this is, this is the opportunity, by the way, for Labour. And we haven't really talked about this. 560,000 members, much more than under me. You know, the, the opportunity, and this is where I think the direction of political parties needs to go, is to be... And this is, sounds like a buzzword, but it isn't. Community organisers. In other words to be not just a party that goes and knocks on doors and says, I'm from the Labour Party, come and vote for me, but does more than that. So let me give you a concrete example. After I lost the general election in 2015, I went on a training course with an organisation called Citizens UK. They organise living wage campaigns, fair rent campaigns. And the whole point of them is you don't ask, what can Jeremy Corbyn do for me? Or what can my local MP do for me? You say, what can we do for ourselves in this area? How can we be a force for change? And so we've gone out and done a campaign against an absolutely shyster organisation called Bright House. I don't know whether you've heard of Bright yep, House. Yep. They sell white goods to people, you know, vastly inflated prices. They're, like the, they're the kind of like the sharks of the, in the payday lending sector yeah. and promoting our local credit union. And that's about us saying we're not we're from the Labour Party, please vote for us. We're from the Labour Party, we're doing this campaign because we care about this community. So in a way, I think... And, and, and Jeremy gets this and has put a new unit in the party to do this. So I think looking outwards is, I think, the thing. Okay. Uh, really long sentence. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's okay, because it was such a good answer. I apologise, I apologise. Uh, are there any questions in this part of the room? Uh, yes, the chap down the front with the beard. Hello, Ed. What's your name? My name's Sam. Due to Brexit and momentum, there's a lot of talk about cross-party splitting. And oh, yeah. Do you think we will stick to a two-party system? Yeah, I want them to split. Uh, <laughs> or do you think we'll move on to something different based on all of the things that are going on at the moment? Um, so I think we're going to not split. Um, and I think the party system is pretty durable. I mean, I think Brexit is uh, an extraordinary and, and sort of perilous moment for the country. And I think that's why it's good people from across parties are working together. You know, I thought what John Major said today about you know, people who are questioning the economic basis of you know, a Brexit strategy that Theresa May is employing, they're not like you know, traitors to the country. I mean, that's obviously right. Um, and so I think working together across parties, yes, um, particularly on something like Brexit. There are other issues where you can work together with, with other parties too. I think that the party system will prove to be quite durable. And I suppose my... Look, my... Uh, vision image of the Labour Party is as a broad church, as I've sort of implied. Um, I don't know about the Tories. I mean, maybe, you know, in an interesting way, Labour is more united on Brexit than the Tories. And that's not just a party political point. You know, basically 98% of Labour people are sort of want a close relationship with Europe, but the Tories are very divided about it. Yeah. Anyway, that was right. a long sentence too. No, that's right, it was a good sentence. Uh, is there anyone else in that section? Yes, that lady there in the red, the red jumper, is that hard to see? Yes, yes, the person in the red jumper. There's no... Refer- no it's, it's very hard to see from here. It's just, it's, I can't see the face, I can just see the arm, you see. The bloke in the red jumper. Yeah. Uh, thank you, my name's uh, Alex Alexander. <laughs> uh, we've, Alexandra. Come, we've, we've come from Corpus today. 
Oh, fantastic! Um, and I wanted to ask you for you know an anecdote oh, yeah. or to, for you to reflect on your That's time. Corpus there. Christi College, Oxford. And would you would you come back if we invited? Definitely, you? <laughs> definitely. In fact, I feel guilty because I didn't come back for the five hundredth anniversary, <laughs> uh, and not many things have a five hundredth anniversary. Um, uh, wow! So um, my anecdote. So I led a sort of rent strike when I was at Corpus. Um, I did well, thank you. Uh, uh, it's turned into um, a networking um, event. Uh, what is this? Um, so, uh, yeah, because the, the college tried to put rents up by 39%. It was actually my first... I sort of learned a lot about politics, and I was the president of the student body, the JCR, the Junior Common Room. And uh, the, um, yeah, the college tried to put, put the rents up by 39%, and we sort of... We kind of protested a lot, and we managed to get them to... We, we sort of knocked, knocked down the rent increase, but it was, it was quite an education. But I've got incredibly fond memories. Um, Were you ever a naughty student? No, only politically. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, we, we really annoyed the guy who was the president, Sir Keith Thomas. I mean, because we, we like demonstrated outside his house, and it wasn't the kind of thing got central television along. I mean, it wasn't the kind of thing that you, did, that you really did. That is quite disruptive. It was quite disruptive. It was during exams. Um, <laughs> there was sort of like chanting. It was sort That's of... quite uh, militant. It was quite militant, actually. Um, not big M militant. Um, LAUGHTER uh, um, yeah, so, uh, but, but it, was, it was a great experience. And actually, look, this is a sort of wider political point. I'd say to people in my constituency in Doncaster, don't be put off by Oxford thinking that everyone's like David Cameron, because they're not. And, uh, you know, I think there's this image of Oxford that it's full of hoorays who sort of, you know, went to private school and who just are kind of, you know, dropping their trousers in the street and all of that. Um, and uh, that's, that's not what... That's not what I imagine at all, the trousers in the street. Oh, right. Well, you know, that's... <laughs> David Cameron, I mean. It was like private school, privilege, oh, dropping trousers in the oh, street. <laughs> but, you know, all of that debauchery <laughs> and the Bullingdon Club and all of that. I remember, that sounds great. Right? What, that's, yeah. That's the... <laughs> Sex with a pig and so on, <laughs> you know. uh, So did you have, like... He always said he had a normal university experience when he was asked about narcotics or something like that. Did you ever try any, like... Try I'm so square, I didn't. Not even I'm by mistake? So, no. <laughs> I know it's so disappointing. I think it was a big political mistake not to. Uh, <laughs> if, you did have, if, if you ever had or do have one vice, what would you say it was? God, that's a good question. It's, it's like a sport. sport. I mean, that's, that's like I'm a great fan of the Boston Red Sox baseball yeah. team. It's kind of like quite, it's quite a sort of tame vice. But you're not into like you, you don't eat too much sugar or uh, you know red wine or butter. Mm. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, you know, I don't know why that came to it. But like, <laughs> butter. You know, that secret butter vice. So many people have. <laughs> uh, let's not go there. Uh, um, uh, no. No, that's uh, really good. Yeah. Well. But you've never had to give up smoking. You've never had to, you know, think, oh, I'm drinking too much or anything like that. Mm, really? Sorry that's about so that. good. No, that's good. That's impressive. You live long. Mm. Hopefully. So yeah, well, that's good, yeah. yeah. Um, right, any Cheered more questions from the floor? Reasons to be cheerful. Oh, yes, there's one. The lady at the back in the glasses. It's a bit of a silly one, but I just wanted to oh, ask you a question. My name's Rachel. Have you ever considered doing stand-up? You'd be really good. Oh, uh, I think I leave it to the professionals. <laughs> uh, um... Yeah, I think it's so scary doing stand up. Really scary. Is it scarier than PMQs? The thing is, though, oh, I don't know. I mean, 
so Aisha Hazaruki used to give me the lines I used to use for PMQs, and I used to murder the lines. But, you know, <laughs> basically, um, uh, I don't know. It feels pretty. Feels nice of you to say, but it feels pretty difficult. But you can. Do, you're quite a good. The Tony Blair impression was really good. Really? Yeah, it was really like was scarily good. Mm. Look, can you do any other impressions? Can you uh, take that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't do. I can't. Uh, my Doncaster accent is not as good as it should be. Uh, uh, but I don't, you don't put it on. I mean, that's important. I mean, that's kind of, you know... I mean, we haven't talked about my... Can I talk about my constituency or is that of course, a long yeah, sentence? Yeah. No, I think, I think actually, you know, I know lots of people are for electoral reform. I'm kind of for electoral reform. I, I think if we have electoral reform, we do need to maintain the constituency link. Yes. Because I think that is such an important thing. You know, I, I wasn't from Doncaster. I didn't pretend that I had some auntie who once sort of lived in Doncaster. I went there and I said, you know, I've never, um, you know, I'm not from here. I wasn't born here. I'd be the first MP for Doncaster North who wasn't born here. And people voted for me because they wanted something different. Um, But I think the constituency system, and particularly I feel a big duty having been leader and my constituency being incredibly loyal to me and it being hard to go as much as I should have done, to try and give something back, and I'm finding sort of different ways of um, of doing that. But uh, I think that link is really important. You know, uh, you learn so much about politics from it. I know that sounds rather earnest, but I genuinely believe it. Well, it's, it's, Doncaster's one of those places that's got a reputation of being sort of, you know straight talking Northerners. Yeah, definitely. Do people do people ever you know direct with you members all of the, the time? What sort of stuff? Do they Most say? of my office actually <laughs> do, direct with me. Well, I think just people tell you like it is, yeah. like Brexit. They go, fuck you, Ned. What the fuck's going on? Yeah. I mean, I actually had somebody in a local Indian restaurant who said to me... Um, oh, don't do that accent. No. <laughs> <laughs> a customer, a customer in the Indian restaurant. Uh, but thanks for the warning. Uh, um, who, who was a very pro Tony Blair, yeah. um, but said to me, I really disagree with what he's saying about Brexit. I was a very big supporter of his but I don't agree with this refer- reversing it thing. Wow. I've probably said it to him, actually, um, to Tony. Um, you know, it's... But people tell it like it is. Because there is one impression you do on your podcast of the bull from Bullseye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a 19, sort of... 80s. 80s. Yeah. You're a bit young for that, aren't you? Well, I was born in 82. I remember watching Bullseye. Yeah. It's coming back. Are you, it's not going to be you, is it? You're well, not I've, be the, I've got the you, physique for Are it. you going to be the new Jim Bowen? You'd be quite good as the new Jim Do you Bowen. Think I'd be quite good. Can I put that on my posters? Definitely. Quite good as the new Jim Bowen. I think they should know. have you. But did you see this story that they're bringing in? No. Back? Yeah. But, I mean, it was weird because I was doing impressions of Bully uh, on the podcast. And, um, and then suddenly, and I forgot to tell Jeff, my current co-host, uh, uh, um, uh, this, which is that the Mirror had a story saying it's, it's coming back. You should go on as a Not with Jim Bowen. You're only good at darts. Mm, General really. Snooker, knowledge. Snooker, Snooker and Pool. Oh, of course, Pool. Pool is a secret vice, actually. Played Pool with Ronnie O'Sullivan. I did, yeah. That's cool. He, he won. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's a lovely bloke. You should have him on this, by the way. Do you, Seriously. Think, do you think he'd do it? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, I don't know, he might do. He came to my constituency. So one of the things I said, trying to give something back to my constituency, he came, he came and did a thing with uh, young people in my constituency after, the, after 2015, I think uh, a couple of years back. And uh, he was brilliant with them. Just talking about his own experience, how he got into snooker, how he had determination. Doing the old weed. He didn't mention that. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, he's, he's massively he's healthy. An icon. He's got massive health, health kick. 
He's, I mean, he's the most naturally gifted snooker player since he's Higgins. absolutely extraordinary. I mean, he's he is absolutely extraordinary. Um, but actually, you know, it's really interesting because I went to see him at the Masters. Uh, at Ali Pali. Yeah, a year oh, ago, um, last January, and um, his, I'll tell you, his entourage was pretty weird because it was me, Damien Hurst, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, the you know, the artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, he's, the, he's the shark in the... Char- yeah, yeah, yeah. Form, formaldehyde. Formaldehyde yeah. bloke. Um, and he was in Fat Les, who did Vindaloo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, he was in All Fat right. Les, yeah, Vindaloo. Right. Um, and, um, I mean, da- Damien's really quite close to, to Ronnie. Um, and, uh, and, and, like, helps him a lot. Um, but anyway, it was just really interesting watching him, because I suddenly felt what other people, maybe Justine, would have felt watching... I felt incredibly nervous yeah. on his behalf, and I felt I could do nothing about it. And, you know, we haven't talked about a political spouse being a political spouse, but, I mean, tell you, being a leader of the opposition is a shit job in some ways, but a huge privilege in others, he said quickly. <laughs> uh, uh, but being a political spouse is really awful. I mean, that is really awful. Because you can do, you are in the public eye, yeah. and I this is totally, I say this about, you know, Philip May, Samantha Cameron, Justin, you know, whoever, Miriam Gonzalez, whoever you are, yeah. uh, you know, you're, uh, Laura, Jeremy's wife, you're in the public eye, um, but there's nothing you can do, you can only do things wrong, yeah. um, you are, dim, you, you, the, 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 the frame, particularly if you're a woman, is to diminish you yeah. to the spouse, um, I mean, it's really tricky. And I don't, you know, uh, I sort of, I think Jeremy, yeah, and I take responsibility for this, I think Jeremy's done this really well. Jeremy and Theresa May, to be fair, have both done it really well, which is keeping their spouses more out of the public gaze. But it's not fair on them. No, I totally agree. Um, so you're watching Ronnie, and uh, <laughs> is, that, you, is that a sort of weird to go from, you know, poli- political yeah. company to then Damien Hurst and Ronnie O'Sullivan? Yeah. Such a surreal company to keep for a politician. No, I mean... Uh, Ronnie, su- well, Ronnie supported me in 2015, yeah. and uh, I got to know him because I was interviewed by a journalist from The Guardian who was his biographer, or wrote, wrote stuff with him, and I ended up t- meeting Ronnie, and then uh, he knew somebody that I knew, so we had a mutual friend in common. And, um, no, I mean, in what sense surreal? Well, don't people go, Ronnie, bloody hell, nice to meet you. What's Ed Miliband doing? Yeah, finally. Hang on, are you, are you two mates? Like, when yeah, people yeah, see you yeah. together, it must be odd. I was just a big snooker fan growing yeah. up. Really big. But it was just big when I was, you know, Higgins, Alex Higgins, Jimmy yeah. White, I mean, Steve Davis, all of that. It was just a really big... I mean, in fact, one of, the, one of my favourite memories of my dad is... Um, you'd be, have been too young for this, but is watching the 1985, is it, final... Um, somebody will know in the audience will know. Alex Higgins, uh, no, um, sorry, um, Dennis Taylor, Steve the Davis. Black Ball final. Yeah, Black Ball final. I mean, yeah. absolutely extraordinary. Oh, and I was, in be- I was in huge trouble with my dad because I hadn't done the coursework for my GCSE uh, or my O-level art. And he was absolutely furious with me. My mum was away somewhere. And I was absolutely in the doghouse. And I remember then we watched this final... Um, till like half past midnight. It was absolutely extraordinary. And he, you know, for somebody who was basically uninterested in sport, he thought snooker was like ballet, he said. Yeah. You know, it was just like the artistry of it. 
Yeah, my friend John Richardson, who's a comedian, says he likes snooker because um, it's tidying up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, Ed, this has been a, just such a phenomenal experience. Thank oh, you so much for coming. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it's it. It's been just... I feel like we, there's just so much more to cover, but so, I've got to definitely. let you go home. That's fair enough. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, next month we have Angela Rayner, and guests for subsequent shows will be announced She's soon. really good, by the way. Oh, she's brilliant. Uh, and, and we'll be... Uh, to answer oh, the question I didn't answer. A future leader. Uh, <laughs> so that's great. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I, ca- I can't thank you enough for doing this. Mm, it's been just... Abs- I've, every interview yeah. here is, is, is special, but I've totally lost in the world of Ed Miliband in the last oh, hour and a half. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely... It's been very special. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive thank you to Ed Miliband. Thank you very much. That was great. Well, there you go, Ed Miliband. What an experience that was. And it, it ran over by quite a bit because I'd completely lost track of time. I remember taking audience questions at the usual time and then just getting totally reabsorbed in it all. I think that Ed, there was... <laughs> I could easily do another hour, two or three with him. There's so many things. I think for those of us that... You know, really lived through that period and were following every twist and turn. Everything, every answer he gave would then just open up a whole new world of areas that I'd, I'd, I wanted to ask him about. And there's so many things we didn't cover. Um, but he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant and has a real sense of humour and a real. In a way, it slightly reminded me of um, Nick Clegg. Uh, just in the sense that these are people who've been through these huge elections, come out the other side, and then can laugh at it, can, with a little bit of distance, can, can laugh at it, and it's so important. But there's so much more to Ed Miliband than just having led Labour into the 2015 election. There's more stuff that he's doing now, and uh, you never want to focus too much on the past with someone like that, because, especially these days, he's still a young politician. Um, so who knows what he'll end up doing next, but he was brilliant. And uh, just a lot of fun to spend time with. He was great. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please you know, tweet the episode out there, share it on Facebook or whatever Snapchat, whatever social media you're on. Um, do leave it a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find it. And come and see me on tour on the 25th of March. I'm at the Glasgow Stand on the 27th of March. I'm at the Edinburgh Stand. It's only a few weeks away now. It's very exciting. Uh, on the 29th of March, I'm in the Bristol Redgrave Theatre. From the 3rd of April to the 7th of April, I'm at the London Soho Theatre. Uh, on the 12th of April, I'm at the Banbury Mill. 19th of April, I'm in Harpenden at the Public Halls. On the 2nd of May, I'm at Sale Waterside Arts Centre. On the 4th of May, I'm at the Tiverton Comedy Hall. And the 18th of May, I'm at the Loughborough Victoria Room. That's my only date in the East Midlands at the moment. Um... So if you're sort of less than nothing away, that might be better for you at the moment. Um, in June, uh, on the 2nd of June, I sound like William Hague then, on the 2nd of June, I'm at the Neild in Chippenham. On the 8th of June, I'm at the Stockton Arts Centre, where this tour will end. But it's a brand new show, loads of uh, up-to-the-minute topical stuff, loads of impressions. Um, so it'd be lovely to see you there. You can get tickets and dates for all those on my website, mapford.com slash live, or on the individual venue websites, uh, as I've read out there. Thank you for downloading this. Um, I've got some amazing guests coming up. It's Angela Rayner at the next live show. Some of the weekly guests coming up are very exciting indeed. And I'm talking to some mega guests for um, for the other, other Palace dates for the rest of the year. I just love doing it. So thank you for downloading it. Thank you to Ed Miliband. Thank you to everyone who came. It just... It gives me such a, 
oh, this is going to sound so corny. I just get such a buzz out of politics in every way. You know, the ideas, the people. But all the different people that are involved in it. And, you know, you can talk to someone who's advised someone or someone who covers it as a journalist, and then you talk to someone who led, a, led the Labour Party. So few people will ever do that job. It's remarkable, really, um, that they come on and they talk just with such humanity and, and in such an informal way. I'm very lucky indeed that, that the guests that come on are, are so good. Um, so I just get a real personal kick out of it. But thank you for downloading it. I'm going to stop being cheesy now, and I'll see you next week. Or I'll see you in person at some of those live dates. See you soon. ta Bye. Oh, and one more thing. I'm so silly. You can get free tickets to come and see Unspun. Um, at the point at which this podcast goes out, there are three more episodes left in this series. The tickets are free and they're recorded at the South Bank on Sundays. I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast have been, and the audience has been phenomenal this series. So if you have been one of those people that's come down uh, to watch it recorded, uh, thank you very much. You can get tickets for that at tvrecordings.com. It really is goodbye now. ta up.